James, James chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 9 and read down to verse 12 as we work our way through this book. James chapter 1 and beginning in verse 9. And uh, we're going to read down to verse 12. And our thought today is rejoicing no matter what. Rejoicing no matter what. Let's look at verse 9 of this chapter then. James chapter 1 verse 9. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. But the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth. And the grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. So far in this book of James, we've seen that the writer is addressing the 12 tribes scattered abroad, those Jewish believers who have suffered persecution and who have been dispersed uh, throughout the Roman Empire. And uh, their, their relief from persecution in Jerusalem was short-lived insofar as they found themselves now in foreign parts being persecuted uh, by the state and by neighbours and others. So James is writing to people who are struggling with discrimination, with persecution, uh, with all kinds of difficulties in adopting to a new society, new surroundings, uh, trying to find a new home, new job, all those things that go with a house move like that. And so he's writing to encourage them and to help them in the trials of life. And he's teaching them that the trials of life are not without purpose. And we've seen that already, that they're sent to measure us and to mellow us and to mature us. And then he spoke to them and to us about trials and the need for wisdom in trials because when we're going through trials there are obviously questions that rest on our hearts that we want an answer to and the Bible exhorts us to seek God's wisdom in such a place and time in our lives. Now he wants them to see that whatever trial you're in that you should continue in faith and that the capacity to rejoice is a reality for all. Remember verse 2 of this text, if you look there, he said, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, into different trials. And uh, remember how the word count there means to consider. He's saying, here is something to consider, that whatever state you find yourself in, whatever circumstance you're surrounded by, don't allow that circumstance or others within that circumstance to rob you of your joy. And that's what he's going to impress upon them in this little tract of scripture we've looked at this morning. That you shouldn't allow your situation or your circumstance to steal your joy as a Christian. You know, joy is different from happiness. The world talks about happiness. Happiness depends upon what happens. But joy is something else altogether. Joy is a gift of God. It's a gift that comes when we focus upon the blessings of God 
rather than the, the surroundings of life. And so James is going to take three categories of people here and talk to them about their joy. And he begins by addressing the poor in verse 9. He says, Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. Now, sometimes James says things that at first glance appear to be rather absurd. You know, this phrase, uh, low degree, is one of those things. That, and when you understand what he's saying here, he's, he's, he's literally saying one who is uh, one who's, who does not rise far above the ground. He's basically talking about people who have hit rock bottom. He's talking about people who are penniless, people who have lost everything. And the truth is that probably most of James's re- readers were in that position. They had fled for their lives from Jerusalem. They had brought very little with them. When a person flees like that, very often they take little else than their clothes on their back and perhaps a few sentimental items that they value. But when they get to their final destination, they discover that they have very little of material value brought with them. And James is addressing such people, and he exhorts these people to rejoice. He says, let the brother of low degree, let the one whose face is in the dirt, let the one who has not risen very far above the ground, let him rejoice in that he is exalted. What are they to rejoice in? Their bank balance? Well, I think that's saying zero, zero, zero. Or maybe even a minus. No, they can't rejoice in that. He tells them to rejoice in that he is exalted. To rejoice literally in their high position. Now, think about the apparent absurdity of saying that to someone in this circumstance. He's saying, let the one who is face down in the mud, let him be glad for the heights he has reached. You know, it almost sounds like he's mocking them. You know, we might, we might equate it to walking into the, the center of Belfast and looking at some of the homeless people that you see in the big cities of these islands and going up to those people and saying, well, now, haven't you done well for yourself? Your mother must be proud of what you've become. Look at, look at the heights you've reached. And you know, that would be a terribly callous and cruel and unkind and unchristian thing to say. And, you know, there may be people who received this letter from James who heard these words and thought likewise of James and thought, well, well, that's pretty unkind of him. It's very, it's very cruel. Is he taunting us? Is he somehow belittling us? Is he making light of our situation? And, of course, James wasn't belittling them in any way. Far from it. He's trying to encourage them. And the heights he's talking about is not in terms of material success or worldly success. He's talking about their position in Christ. You see, to most people, even to many Christian people, position and possessions are all that matters. And their whole lives are driven by financing and by money and by prestige and by making an impression upon your family and your friends and your neighbors and your colleagues and so on. And, and James comes to these people who've lost all of that. And he says, listen, don't worry about that. Rejoice in that you're exalted. Now, no doubt many of them thought, well, money would be the answer to their needs. Do you ever feel that way? If I, had a, if I had this much money or that much money, 
my troubles would be over. Everything would be fine. But there are things that money cannot buy, friends. Money cannot buy certain virtues and certain values that pertain to the Christian life. Things which God has given us, uh, which come as a matter of his grace and not as a matter of human effort or indeed of circumstance. We have great riches in Christ. Look in 1 Corinthians, if you will, for a moment in chapter 4. Every one of us has great riches in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Sorry, not chapter 4, chapter 1. It says that, I thank my God, verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything, notice, ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. God saved us, and not only did he save us, but he filled us with his Holy Spirit. He dwells in us. He's gifted us with spiritual gifts. He's an ever real presence in our lives. And in other words, we have riches in Christ that the world knows nothing of. Here's what I want you to see this morning. The poorest Christian is richer than the wealthiest worldling. The poorest Christian, in material terms, is richer in spiritual terms than the wealthiest of worldlings. Friends, don't envy the rich. Don't believe the lie that they're living a happier, more fulfilled life than you are or than I am. They're not. Some of the unhappiest people on earth today are also some of the wealthiest people on earth uh, today. They've climbed to the top of the greasy pole and they have found when they got there that there was nothing there that satisfies. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. The book of Ecclesiastes was written by King Solomon. King Solomon was extraordinarily rich. Uh, he was the wealthiest of all the kings that ever ruled over ancient Israel. And uh, he's coming to the end of his days in Ecclesiastes chapter, in the book of Ecclesiastes, and he's making some observations about life and about his experience of life. And I want you to notice in verse 10 what he says he says in verse 10 of chapter 5, He that loveth silver, notice, shall not be satisfied with silver. I mean, that right there speaks to me, and I think immediately of the old uh, millionaire Rockefeller, whose name, of course, is, is synonymous with extraordinary wealth, going back to the beginning of the last century. And they, Rockefeller was interviewed one day, and he was asked, you know, what did he want in life? He was, at this point, he had more money than most men could have ever have imagined. He was asked what he wanted in life, and his answer was, one dollar more. In other words, for all of his millions, he wasn't satisfied. And that's exactly what Solomon says. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. He says, when goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? 
The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him uh, to sleep. You know, this week uh, my wife had her telephone number stolen. (laughs) And uh, the person who took her number, I presume, is trying to steal her identity. And uh, they're trying to use her number to access her bank account. What they don't know is that that number isn't paid on her bank account. It was paid in my bank account. But nevertheless, we had to go through the whole procedure of trying to sort the mess out and make sure that our bank, was, bank details were secure and calling the bank and changing our security details and all those things that you, that you have to do. And Hazel and I were commenting about, how, isn't it good that we're not rich? You know, even if, we lo- even if we lost money, it wouldn't be a huge amount of money. It wouldn't be millions of pounds or even tens of thousands of pounds. It wouldn't be very much at all. In fact, it's probably so little that the scammer is probably uh, wasting his time trying to get into our account. When he looks at it, he might lend me some money. But, uh, but here's the thing. You know, those people who have lots of money are worried about their money. That's what Solomon says. He says the sleep of a laboring man is sweet. A man who just does an honest day's work can go to bed. Uh, he just rests whether he eats little or whether he eats much. But the abundance of the rich, if I were a multimillionaire, I would be worried about what was going to happen to my riches if someone accessed my bank details. The Manchester City footballer, Kyle Walker, not to be confused with our Kyle Walker, wherever he is. There he is. He's definitely not a Manchester City footballer. Don't think he's run the length of himself in a long time. No. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but Kyle Walker, the Manchester City footballer, was caught, this, caught out this last week or so having an affair. And uh, while we were in church last Sunday morning, Uh, he was giving a tearful interview to the press in which he stated that he wished he could go back and fix the problems that he had created in his home and in his marriage and with his children and his wife has now left him and uh, the home is broken. And, uh, you know, you think about the damage that was done there by his sin. But if you and I could step into his home today, if we could fly in an airplane and go to Alderley Edge, probably is where he lives, just outside of Manchester, where all the Premier League footballers live in grand big spreads. If we could go to one of their homes and, and enter into Kyle Walker's home in particular and, and speak to Kyle and say, now, now look at this, Kyle. Well, you've had a hard week. We know that. We know that we've seen the interview. We've read your, about your troubles. But look at this, Kyle. You earned 27 million pounds. You've got a 27 million pound contract. I mean, Kyle, you've more money than most people will ever make in a lifetime. You make hundreds of thousands of pounds every single week of your life. Whether you go on the pitch for 90 minutes or whether you sit on the bench or even if you're injured, you get hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds placed into your bank account. Look at this palatial home. Look at the wonderful furnishings. Look at all the gadgetry and the technology that others 
others only dream of. My goodness, Kyle, you have it made. Look at your cars, those, those prestige cars in the driveway, the Bentleys and the Lamborghinis and the sports cars, cars that other men only ever dream of driving. And look at all the jewelry that you own. Look at all the finery that you have. Listen, Kyle, you ought to be the happiest man on the earth. He would chase you out of the place. He said, you get out of here. These things count nothing to me. Because my home is broken. My marriage is ruined. My children are gone. See, what Kyle and others need to realize is this. That happiness doesn't necessarily come with a high salary. You see, knowing Christ and living right brings a sense of purpose and worth and hope to our lives that the wealthiest of men lack. And so James comes to these folks who have lost everything. And he says, listen, don't be downhearted. I know you feel like you're just as low as, as life can possibly take you. But look up. In that you've been exalted. He says, you have a place in the heavenlies. You are seated at the Father's table. You're already there in his mind. And you have far more than this world can ever provide you with. But then in verses 10 and 11 of James, he speaks to the privileged. Let's go back there to James chapter 1. He speaks to the poor in verse 9. He speaks to the privileged in verse 10. He says, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. He says, let the brother who is rich rejoice in that he is made low. What does he mean by that? You know, we've spoken about those who left with very little, but among them also there were others who left who had a lot. You know, in every, in every trial there are people who do okay, they survive. You know, you look at, uh, you look at anything, any war, you look at any, the pandemic, anything. There's always people who come out of it and they still have their wealth intact. And, and uh, even in the tribulation period, we read about how the, the poor get poorer and the rich get richer. How that the price of wheat and other commodities go up and the poor can't afford it, but the rich continue to profit. And so now James comes to those who are wealthy among believers. And of course, we know there were wealthy believers in Bible times. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man. Nicodemus was a wealthy man. Barnabas was a wealthy man. And it was to this kind of person that James is now speaking. And now the three men that I've just mentioned, each one of them was a blessing to the church in their own right. Uh, you, know, they, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, we, we think that to be rich is a sin. It's not a sin to be rich. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy per se. Those men bless the church with their wealth. But sometimes people who are wealthy can come to a place where the making of money is all that matters, just as we spoke of a few moments ago in the words of Rockefeller. And remember this, Jesus had cautioned us about the deceitfulness of riches. The prophet Jeremiah said, Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Um, Paul spoke of the love of money being the root of all evil. 
of all kinds of evil. And so James too has a lot to say to the wealthy, to the rich. And, and he's coming to these wealthier brothers and sisters and he's cautioning them about rejoicing in their riches, about saying, well, I'm so glad that I've got so much money that this present situation hasn't impacted me as it has others. And he says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice instead in the, the new perspective that Christ brings to your life in this situation. You see, the poor man who is feeling low, who's in the valley, was taught to look up and find joy in his relationship with the Lord in the hope that that brings. But those who were still doing well were told to humble themselves and remember that their ultimate security rests not in pounds and pence, not in dollars and cents, not in stocks and shares or bonds or properties but in their relationship with the Lord this person needs to see things differently you see to this point his whole outlook has been geared by things he could weigh things he could see things he could feel things he could touch it's all about what he can count up and account for it's about what he can take to the bank but now these trials are putting his Riches under a little bit of pressure. And he needs to see his wealth in a different light. And so James paints a picture in verse 11 of the, the sun rising and withering the grass. And, and you think about that, he's picturing a desert sun. In the desert, you know, if there's a shower of rain, well, sure enough, even in a desert, a little bit of grass will grow up through the, uh, the soil, the, the soil that was previously arid and dry. A little bit of grass will come up. But then you let one day of burning sunshine follow that and that grass withers and dies and, never, and is never seen again. And James's message to the wealthiest of Christians was this, your riches are temporal. I want you to get that because, you know, none of us consider ourselves, none of us consider ourselves among the rich of our society. But actually, and I've said this before, on a world scale, we're among the wealthiest people alive. We're in the top 5% of the world's earners. All of us, even the poorest of us, is in the top 5% of the world's earners. And so we've got to realize that everything we own is temporal. You know, uh, Brother Ferguson during the week uh, mentioned the, the uh, possibility of World War III. And I, I know I don't want to be a scaremonger here in any sense. Uh, but there has been in the news uh, several times mention of a proper full-scale war in which this country might be embroiled. And, you know, I'm praying that doesn't happen. I, I hope it doesn't happen. <clears throat> you should be praying that way too. Uh, we certainly don't want that to be inflicted upon us as individuals or as, as a nation. Uh, but... It just concerns me that politicians are kind of mentioning it, mentioning how we need to build our armed forces, mentioning how we need to put more money into defense, mentioning the possibility of a war with Russia or a war with Iran. Uh, and, you know, if, if, we, if we enter into a war with Russia, let's be honest here, it's not going to be a pretty picture. It's not going to be like the Falklands War, which was thousands of miles that didn't touch us. You know, it's not going to be like somewhere way off far. No, listen, if, if we get into a war with Russia, there's going to be missiles raining down in our cities. And what I'm saying to you is this. Those of us who are wealthy, all of us who are wealthy, actually, 
might find in such circumstances that our wealth quickly disappears. And then where are we going to be? Are we going to be in despair? Are we going to acknowledge that in the, at the very outset that our riches were temporal all along? That our house isn't actually our house? That our car isn't actually our car? That it all belongs to the Lord? That it's all gifted to us by him? You see, we, when we trust in earthly values and in material possessions, we're trusting in the temporary and we're trusting in the transitory. We can't, we can't take it with us and there's no guarantee that we can even hold on to it in this life. I like the story of the man who loved money so much that as he was approaching death, having hoarded quite a bit, he called together three ministers a Presbyterian minister and a Methodist minister and a Baptist minister. And he said to the ministers, now listen, I want you to make me a promise. When I die, I want you to put uh, all the money that I've squirreled away, I have 150,000 pounds here squirreled away, I'd like you to put that money in my coffin so as I can take it with me. Will you make me that promise? He says, you're all men of God and I can't trust anybody else. So they all agreed that they would promise to help him out. And so he gave each one of them 50,000 pounds each to put into his coffin when he died. Well, he did die. And uh, on the day of his death, sure enough, the undertaker left the lid open. The Presbyterian minister went forward and he put a little envelope, uh, a sizable envelope into the coffin. The Methodist minister, he also put a, envelope into the coffin and the Baptist pastor also put an envelope into the coffin well a few days later the three men got together and they were having fellowship and they were discussing the request of this man and the Presbyterian minister looked a little embarrassed and he said well you know he said I want you both to know that I'm a little ashamed of myself he said I did put the 50,000 pounds in the coffin but I held back 5,000 pounds which I'm going to put toward fixing the church roof. Well, at this point, the Methodist minister, his head went down. And he said, well, I I have to confess also. I took 10,000 pounds out. I only put 40,000 pounds in. But I'm taking that 10,000 pounds and I'm giving it to missions. The Baptist pastor was outraged. He says, you too should be ashamed of yourselves. He says, I gave all that money into the coffin. He says, in fact, I wrote a check out for the whole lot. <laughs> you know, there's a coming a day when our accumulated wealth is going to be as good as that check. When the petals of the fragile flower that we call life finally wither and die Our possessions will be of no value to us whatsoever. Look in Ecclesiastes again, that great book of wisdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And let's look at what Solomon had to say in this regard. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 8. This is what he says at the start of verse 8. He said, I gathered me also silver and gold. And the peculiar treasure of kings and of the, prom- of the provinces. Verse 9. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me 
in Jerusalem. Verse 10, And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. And then look at verse 11. Then I looked in all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of the Spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. What does Solomon say? He said, I had more money than people could ever imagine. I set my heart on something, I got it. You know, if I went into a shop and I saw something I liked, I bought it. I had more money, more wealth, more silver, more gold, more goods than anybody. He said, but I came to this conclusion that there was no profit to any of it. That all of it in the end is pretty worthless. It's just toys that we leave behind. And James' message to these believers was, listen, your possessions, your wealth is transitory, it's temporary. But also, he tells them that their, that their wealth is, is conditional. Your riches are conditional. You know, it's like the grass of the field that he's just referenced, like the grass of the desert. It depends on the favor of circumstances. You know, you think of, of who enjoys what we might call life's privileges. You know that, what that man's concerned about? He's concerned about stocks. He's concerned about shares. He's concerned about uh, contracts and agreements and deals and contacts and speculation and prospects and all those things. His wealth is conditioned by so many factors. But that's not to be our perspective as Christians, even as wealthy Christians. The Lord Jesus said this, A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. You know, to look at most of us, you might think that it did. Which world are you living for? Which world are we living for? Are we living for this world? With all its material wealth? Or are we living for the next world? Are we living for eternity? You know, you're a fool if you're living for the things of today. You're a fool if you're living for the wealth of this world. Yeah, you might drive a nice car. Yeah, you might live in a beautiful home. Yeah, you might take nice holidays. You might wear the finest of linen. But at the end of the day, they're going to bury you in a hole the same size as the poor man. No difference. No difference. And then where will you be? Do you recall the, the, the time when, if, when you were perhaps like that brother of low degree? You know, maybe you've got a lot of this world's possessions now, but do you remember maybe a time in your life when you didn't have so much? Maybe when you struggled? Maybe when you were starting out in business? Maybe when you were at university? You were living on beans? Or living on pasta? You look back to those days and remember those days, and say, oh, there was times when I didn't have much. Days when I didn't have hardly 2D to rub together. You know, but yet with all, in those days you wouldn't miss your time with the Lord. In those days you were excited about the things of God. In those days you wouldn't have missed the prayer meeting. In those days you had a passion for souls. In those days you were in love with Jesus. And time went by and the Lord blessed you materially. And, and now that you're prospered, tell me, where's your love now? 
Where's your passion now? Where's your interest now? Are you still as spiritually keen today as you were when you had nothing or little? And we're hearing the story of a man came into his pastor and he says, Pastor, I'm very sorry, I've got to tell you something and I, I hope you'll help me. He says, what is it? He says, I, I, he says, when I started out in business, he says, I made a vow to the Lord that I would give 10% of everything I own to the church. And the pastor says, well, what's the problem? He says, well, it was very easy in the beginning when I didn't have very much money. He says, but now I'm a very wealthy man. And giving 10% of my profits to the church seems to be rather extreme to me. I'm giving perhaps more than I ought to be giving. And pastor, I don't know what to do. Do you think God will let me off that vow? The pastor says, well, I'll tell you, I don't think he will. But I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll pray that the Lord will help you out. Let's pray that the Lord takes you back to where you had nothing. You see, that man needed to learn the lesson. That his wealth isn't his wealth at all. That our wealth belongs to the Lord. And Paul writing to Timothy says this, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Well, you live in a humble little terraced home, or you live in a fine spread of a place, God has given you that thing to enjoy. Enjoy it. Enjoy it as the blessing of his hand. But don't hold back on God because of it. Don't make it an excuse not to serve the Lord. Paul spoke, or James spoke to the, the poor. He speaks to the privileged. And then he speaks to the persecuted in verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord shall give, uh, hath promised to them that love him. Now, James speaks to his readers generally at this point. He's not speaking to either the rich or the poor. He's speaking to them all as those who are experiencing trials. And the word temptation there just means that. It means a trial or a testing. And James says, Blessed is the man that endures testing. And, uh, you know, he says this person ought to rejoice. He ought to be happy uh, as one who stands his ground. Blessed is the man who endures testing. How can, he, how can we rejoice in the midst of such pressures? Well, you should underscore two words in that verse. You should underscore the word endureth. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. And then you should under, underscore the word tried. For when he is tried, the word endureth has to do with staying power. Perseverance is the response of the person who bears up under stressful circumstances. Endurance, stickability, constance, faithfulness. You know, I was thinking about this this morning before church as I was reviewing my message and reading the scripture and my mind went back to a young woman, beautiful young woman who taught Sunday school at Milton Baptist Church, a young lady by the name of Jill Bond. And Jill was a, was a beautiful Christian, had just the joy of Christ shining out of her. But sadly, she contracted cancer, ovarian cancer. And she ended up dying of it when she was about 40 or so years of age. Uh, had two, two young children at the time. It was very tragic. Uh, but I would go in and visit with Jill in the hospital. And uh, you could see how her condition was deteriorating week on week. And, 
and uh, I would go in. And, you know, she would just be always, always have this big smile on her face. She always had this big smile and was always rejoicing in the Lord. Now, she knew she was dying. She wasn't deceived about that. She knew that her, her condition was terminal. But she wasn't going to allow it to rob her of her joy in the Lord. And I remember one day going into her and her condition was such that she couldn't even physically speak. And I sat there and I read the scriptures with her and I prayed with her and I shared with her and told her some of the things that were going on at church. And I'll never forget that this is that as I was leaving, she kind of made a noise and I turned around and she just had this big beaming smile and she went. And the next day she was dead. That was my last image of that woman. <coughs> Heading into eternity, but sticking at it. Enduring. Faithful. Constant. That's what the word endurance means. And the word tried, well, we've seen it before in verse 3. It conveys the picture of a precious metal that is being heated until it's, uh, until it's liquid uh, boils and, and the impurities rise to the top and are scooped off and the silversmith can look in and, and see his image. And then he knows that this metal is, is now ready to be used in some form of jewelry or whatever. And that's a picture for us. When we recognize that our trials, the trials that God has placed us in, have a purpose, that, that in trials we're put into a melting pot to remove the dross from our lives until Christ can see his own image in us. That's the purpose of trials. Now let me say to you, this is much easier to preach than it is to practice in reality. It's much easier for you to listen to it than for you to actually do it when the time comes. But that's what the Lord is calling us to do. And there's a reward for the believer who remains faithful in trials. There's a reward for the person who can look at the circumstances of life, no matter how dire they are, and go, it's all right, Jesus is with me. The Bible says that the Lord will bring to that person the crown of life, that he will give them the crown of life. And the crown is, of life is what Paul had in mind when he wrote to Timothy saying this, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. You know, friends, as we sit here today over in the city of London, in the Tower of London, hundreds of people right now, as we sit in this church, are on a travel leader, and they're being moved along to view the crown jewels. It's an amazing sight, something worth going to see if you're ever in London. And you go in there, and, and in the middle of the room, behind the security glass of a, of a glass cabinet sits the orb and the scepter, which you would have seen if you watch the king's coronation, objects of glittering gold and, and gleaming silver. And in the center of it all are the, the crowns. St. Edward's crown and the imperial state crown. And they're skillfully presented in such a way as, 
However the light hits them, it just makes them gleam and look absolutely spectacular. And Queen Victoria, who wore the St. Edward's crown on her head at her coronation, said that wearing that crown for hours and end was difficult. It was heavy, she said, and it gave her a terrible headache. Our late queen, Queen Elizabeth, said much the same thing of the imperial crown, which she wore on her head at her coronation. She said it almost broke her neck. Now we look at those things, and tourists today will look at those things and all their sparkle and all their glitter and be mightily impressed. But we forget that those crowns are made of heavy metals. Gold is a heavy metal. Silver is a heavy metal. And all those diamonds and stones, well, they're just that. They're stones. And stones weigh. And so as you look at those crowns, you know, as you just look at them, they look very appealing. And you think, my goodness, look at the wealth of this nation. And look at the wealth of the monarchy. And what it must be like to, to be able to put a crown like that on your head. But we forget that those weighty crowns weigh down the wearer. And that's the story of all earthly crowns. They look outwardly attractive. Those things that the devil holds out to you looks outwardly attractive. But for those people who ultimately obtain them, they weigh them down. It's a burden upon them. But there is a crown that Jesus has for every faithful child of God that will be placed on our heads, not by the archbishop or anybody else, but by his nail-pierced hands. And let me tell you, that crown will not feel at all weighty or burdensome because you won't even wear it for a minute. Because no sooner is it on your head, then you will remove it and lay it at the feet of our Savior, declaring, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they were and are created. Rejoice this morning. We're a blessed people. Do you realize that? If you're saved this morning, you're a blessed man, you're a blessed woman, we're a blessed people. Rejoice this morning. We are a privileged people. Look up. We are seated in the heavenlies. Even if World War III should come, we're still seated in the heavenlies. Our privilege is not withdrawn by God. Look around and realize, however hard things may be, listen, however difficult life may seem, however grim and dim the future might look to you, listen, with Jesus we are substantially better off than our unsaved neighbor. Brother, sister, James comes to us this morning and he says, whatever troubles you, whatever pain has landed on your doorstep, whatever difficulty you're facing, whatever circumstances grinding you down, look up and rejoice no matter what. 
May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning.